I feel that, and this is sort of a broader thing I've realized about the way people's brains are wired, including my own. Sometimes we feel that we need to be either this or that, right? And if we feel that we like both, so for example, I like math, I also like business, but the conventional wisdom would be like, okay, Rama, make up your mind, just pick one and go with, double down on it, become greater. This is the Indianness podcast, stories of success from leaders and changemakers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I get asked that all the time, but I have no idea. So let's find out together because every story is unique and we have a very unique one with us today too. I'm very excited to have Professor Rama Ramakrishnan with us today. He's the professor of practice at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. He has served in senior roles at Salesforce and many other large corporate entities. And he currently serves as an advisor to many startups. I invited him on this show as he's been through an incredible journey of change and opportunity, going from for-profit entities to academics, then back to corporate world, and then to the academic world. I was curious to find out what that journey is like. Welcome, Rama. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. It's great to be here, Sanjay. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Rama, as they say, to really find out about where the journey ends and not to say that the journey has ended at all, but at least at this point, you have to go back to the beginning and we want to go to the absolute very, very beginning. So, can you tell our listeners where you were born? Tell us a little bit about your family, your parents, any siblings. Just please give us and paint a picture of what the family environment was like for us. Yeah, definitely. So I was uh, born in Tamil Nadu. I, I speak Tamil. That's my native language. Uh, I was born in a place called Bellur, uh, which is, I want to say, roughly 100 miles from Chennai. And uh, Bellur is actually very famous because it has a famous hospital. Uh, the Christian Medical College Hospital, the CMC Hospital. So I was born there. I was raised there. My father uh, worked in the Indian Postal Service. My mom was uh, a school teacher, elementary school teacher for a number of years. I actually lived in sort of a traditional joint family with my grandparents, my father's parents, as well as my dad's younger brother, his wife and their children. So it was a sort of a nice big joint family. There was a lot of love and affection in the home. I have an older sister. That's the only sibling I have. Yeah, so we all grew up together in Bellur. Wonderful. Now, dad was in the postal service. Did that involve him moving to different cities or was he stationed uh, only in Bellur? He was stationed uh, in Bellur most of his career. But as it turns out, my sister was a very good student. So she wanted to study engineering. And so she had applied to the University of Madras College of Engineering at Gindi, well known in Tamil Nadu. So she got admitted and she was able to go there. And then about maybe a year or two into her undergraduate education, we moved to Chennai because my parents wanted to be closer to her. And they also felt, while I was a bit too young to sort of very deliberately remember exactly what sort of the, the logic was, I'm pretty sure that they also felt that by moving to Chennai, uh, it would be better for me for my own education once I sort of graduated from high school. I guess the other factor, of course, was that my mother's parents, my maternal grandparents actually lived in Chennai. 
So we actually had strong family roots there as well. So for a whole host of these kinds of reasons, we actually moved to Chennai when I was just when I was when I just entered my ninth grade, and my sister was already in engineering college by then. Now this was a joint family, at least in Vellore, right? Uh, till you moved there, uh, grandparents and uh, uncle and aunts, etc. What was the emphasis during that period? Was education, sports, fun, all of the above? What was the general atmosphere like that time? That's actually a really interesting question because I've actually thought about this over the years on and off because I know that sort of there is this sort of conventional wisdom that Indian culture does value education a great deal. And I asked myself, was it actually true in my household? And the funny thing is, it's actually true, but in a very strange way, which is that there was no sort of explicit, overt, overarching, overbearing pressure to do well in school or else, right? There was no sort of notion of me being quote-unquote sort of threatened that if I had to, if I don't do well, I would not be given whatever and so on and so forth. But at what actually was there, I think, was even more effective, which was this very sort of very strong undercurrent expectation that you, of course, have to do well in school. There was sort of no choice in, in some sense. Uh, there was this implicit baseline expectation that you had to do well in school. And that sort of permeated uh, like the family atmosphere, the culture, and so on. So I saw my sister was doing well in school, and I sort of almost unthinkingly uh, ended up being reasonably good at school because it almost felt like there was no other option. I know it sounds a little strange saying this, but that's sort of the best reconstruction I have of what actually was the case. I don't use the word pressure, but whatever, was it self-port or was it just the environment that you had? You know, I actually liked learning. I actually didn't mind going to school. I do. I did like to learn things. Even in Velour? Yes. Yes. How was the school environment there? It was, it was okay. Uh, was it a government school or a private school? It, it was a private school, but it was definitely, it was a private school, but it was, I don't think the quality of the education was tremendous, to be honest. I had some really good teachers for certain things. Uh, for example, my English teacher was a very supportive person. It was really great. But some of the other courses that I took, some of the other subjects we were taught, it was, they were okay. I mean, they were trying to do a good job, I'm sure, but it didn't really leave a lasting impression on me. And so to a large extent, I think I was sort of in some sense self-taught, even though, of course, I was going to school. It's not old. I was definitely going to school. But I think I became a bit of an autodidact even early on. And I think in many ways, for me, what lit the spark, if you will, was I one summer, I happened to visit my maternal grandparents in Chennai. In Chennai. In Chennai. Mm -hmm with my mom. And it so happened that one of my aunts who lived in Bangalore, she had boys roughly my age. And so they had visited Chennai and had just left before we got there. And one of them happened to have left behind a copy of Enid Blyton's novels. Oh, wow. And I don't know, I can see from your expression that is a... Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so I happened to pick this up, this Enid Blyton. It was, it involved the famous five. I think you may recall that scene. And I'm, I kid you not, I was captivated. I was completely hooked, like hook, line, and sinker, the way in. And so I just couldn't believe that this sort of universe, this world existed. So I devoured the book. Then we went back to Velour, and then I pestered my father to find a lending library, which had books like this. He found a lending library. And then I proceeded to systematically work my way through everything they had. And it blighted, and I was 
reading fairly indiscriminately. I read Brighton one day, and then uh, Alistair MacLean the next, and so on and so forth. And it got to a point wherein I think I basically, it sort of became like an addiction. Reading became like an addiction. I, every single day, I had to read a lot, more, almost all the time, to the point where I would actually, when I'm riding the bicycle to go somewhere, I would be reading while r- riding the bicycle. Clearly unsafe. No. But anything and everything. It could be Iron Rand, Iron Rand or anything like that. Yes, exactly. In fact, Fountain, I, Atlas Shrugged, et cetera, et cetera, which I did. Very eclectic, wide-ranging, just because it, it, there was this deep sort of hunger to just read, and which was sparked by that little humble Enid Blyton novel. Enid Blyton. So yeah. that was a important thing. And it blighten. I Sometimes I think, what if they had not forgotten to leave it behind? What if my cousin had actually taken it back with him? What would have happened? I have no idea. But I, I shudder at the thought because that was such a pivotal moment for me. And I'll never forget it. So you were reading this thing because you had a thirst. Were you navigating or were you drawn towards certain things or... It was just you had a thirst, Rama, for knowledge or just indiscriminate, wide-ranging thirst for anything and everything. English, right? All those books were in English. Only in English. Yes, only in English. And dad was bringing them from a lending library for you. Yeah, he, he took me to the library and then I figured out that actually I could take the bus to school in such a way I could stop there on the way back and things like that. Yeah. And I'd give you an example of the indiscriminateness. About six months in, I was sort of running out of stuff to read in the library. So I went to the government library in Bellore. And they actually had copies of Plato's The Republic. And I'm like, okay, great. I'll read that next. Oh, my God. He brought it back home. It was brutal. I literally couldn't make any headway in it. But just to give you an idea of the level but of... You were a sponge, basically. Yeah, I was Yeah, I was a sponge. I just misguided very often because I was trying to read things like Plato. But... Yeah, but it, but yeah, that is really, I think, the spark. Was sister also a readaholic or was it just you? My sister read, but I wouldn't characterize it as a readaholic like I was. I was uh, just. I'm a readaholic too, but anyway, okay. that's a separate yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing, Sanjay, is that it lasts to this day. Like I you can know, see right behind you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, at least a small portion, I have a feeling it's much larger. Now, tell me, when you were doing homework, did mom ever help you with your homework? Yeah, she would be around nearby. If I had any difficulty, I would ask her and she would sort of come and help me out or my dad would come and help me out. But we did have this sort of ritual of at a certain time, I had to sit down and do my homework. And that was really the only quote-unquote sort of rule or ritual that was in place. What time was the homework? Uh, what was it the was like 7 p.m. or something. Seven, and what, for an hour or two hours? For an hour, because at eight, we will always, the whole family will sit down and have dinner. The joint family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you we'll all, that... just to give you the paint the picture, we will all be sitting on the floor and eating. Of course. It is a big family. Lots family. of, there was, I don't think there was a dining table in our house. And we'd all be sitting around the floor eating. And uh, yeah, and then things will all wrap up around nine o'clock. And then I'll be chatting with my family till 10 o'clock. And then I'll be off to bed. And how are you doing in school at that time? Average, average plus? I was towards near the top of the class, though not the number one person in the class. I was usually like the number one person in like math, math kinds of things and in English. But in other things, I was sort of somewhere in the top, I would say the top decile, but you know, not by any means the number one ranker. Were you, or do you think at that point, were you working really hard or was it an average uh, work that you were doing? I, mean, I think I was putting in some pretty basic effort, to be honest. 
I was addicted to do things at that point. I would be reading whenever I was at home, and when I was not at home, I'd be playing cricket. So, oh wow! So yeah. you got hooked onto cricket? Oh too. yeah, yeah, big time. So were you on the bowling side, the batting side, or an all rounder? I was an way? off spinner. Off spinner. Wow, yeah. Prasanna. But, yes, uh, exactly. I don't know if you remember. Oh, of Kera course, Prasanna. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to mention our very own uh, Venkatraguan. So Venkatraguan, yeah. This was during the time of the great spinners, Bedi. Prasanna. Then we had a Googly. Chandrasekhar. Yeah, Chandrasekhar. All time great Googly bowler. But yes. anyway, most of these folks won't even know. But anyway, that's a whole separate. And you were playing cricket outside with family, friends, with whom? No, not with family, just with friends. Friends. Yeah, and you yeah. had some good group of friends? Yeah, yeah we had a very time. nice group of friends. And yeah, we would be playing literally all the time. It was wow. really amazing. Yeah. So great memories at that time. Oh, lovely memories. Wonderful memories. Yeah. Wow. And then. So you, dad decided that you needed exposure. Sister had gone to Chennai, and then obviously maternal grandparents were there. So yep. you moved around the ninth grade to Chennai. How was that move? I mean, did you welcome that, or you you were moving away from the joint family? Yeah, yeah. No, I was actually. I think I was. Obviously, I missed my the joint family, but we would visit them often because Bellur is very close to Chennai, and and of course I could see my grandparents more often. It was nice, and then I had other cousins through my dad's side who were all living in Chennai, so I got to see them much more often. So it was all very good. And, and the school, new school, yeah, the new school. It took some getting used to because first I had to go to a school for my ninth and tenth grade, and then I went to another school for eleventh and twelfth. The eleventh and twelfth school, I went to a school called DAV, very famous. Yeah, and it was kind of very different because I was I had been going to pretty sleepy schools till then. Yeah. Uh, Went to DAV and I was like, it's all very different. I felt what is Central Board? Yes. So I went yeah. from State Board to Central when I went uh, from 10 to 11. Yeah, it was a, like a big change. Big change. So how was that? And then much more competitive, right? Much more competitive. But you know, for me, the academic intensity wasn't that different, to be honest. It wasn't that big a deal. What for me was actually quite difficult, was quite challenging, was the fact that the students appeared to be much more suave. Uh, more sophisticated, are, more sophisticated, much more worldly wise. They could speak English really fluently, and I couldn't speak English really fluently then. They seemed very confident. They would be like arriving in the school in the, in chauffeured cars. I would be like taking the bus and walking from the bus stop, things like that. At that age, yeah, those back, things matter. Those things, like I, I would, I was wearing bell bottoms, and they were wearing drain pipe pants stuff. Yeah, like I know. So those were all difficult. So they had those clicks and you were coming from outside. Yeah. Not that they were unwelcoming, just to be yeah. clear. I think they were open to all these things. It's just that it was just within you, actually. It was you within. Yeah, I was the problem. I felt I was an outsider. And so it took a while to get used to. But then for me, the breakthrough was there was some cultural festival in the very first sort of semester I was there. And by some crazy chance, I discovered I was really good at doing dumb charades. Oh my. Wow. So it was just randomly. Who knew? And then they had some tryouts for this stuff. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll try Dhamsharaz or whatever. So I tried it and I ended up being really good at it. And you had never done it before. I had not done it before. So wow. then it was like, okay, great. Rama, you and uh, this other guy, actually, his name was Sanjay too. Oh. You were Sanjay. So mm -hmm. you, you were going to be the Dhamsharaz team for DAV. And, and that was nice because it made me feel a bit more cool. Part more of the cool. Gang. Exactly. And so you became part of the Dhamshira's team for DAV. Uh, that was pretty cool. Was Did you do any cricket at all at that time? Or no, was, no, I did not. I stopped yeah. cricket at, in 10th grade. 11th, 
I mean, I don't know if I even tried out. I also okay. came from the sense that my uh, ability level wasn't there. Okay. Uh, people in 11th and 12th playing uh, our DAV, I think they were clearly a quantum better than me. And they were serious. They were going they were more for players. the Ranji yeah. and all that other stuff. Right. They were talented. I was not, <laughs> to be put it very simply. Mm. So I didn't pursue that more than that. And then uh, from an academic standpoint, what were you thinking? What was going on at that time? Well, you know, 11th and 12th are pivotal years, right? Yeah, yeah. I loved 11th. I'm sorry. I loved math. I loved English. I loved biology. I really didn't like anything else all that much. Math, English, biology. Yeah, I, if I if left to my own devices, I feel that I would have probably tried to do. If I had grown up in the U.S., I would have probably done like a double major in math and English. Of course, this was India, Chennai. That wasn't entirely possible, which is why I ended up going into engineering, because it was a closer approximation to what I truly liked than anything else. So you were obviously preparing, etc. Was there pressure that what you wanted to do or that maybe IIT or this or that, was there any pressure on you at that time? Yeah, I mean, my, my parents, I already had a cousin who had gone to IIT. My sister was in engineering college. And so they were like, yeah, why don't you try, basically try to get into an engineering school? And, you know, I was preparing for the joint entrance exam and things like that. And to basically, to make a long story short, I ended up going to IIT Madras. And and local, local, not yeah, much stuff. No, but did you uh, so when you uh, applied, did you think you were going to get in to IIT? No, because you, you can never tell, right? It's a tough exam. You never can tell. And like the story goes, if you happen to have a headache and if you happen to go to the bathroom for an extra five minutes, you're going to drop thousand ranks or something like that. So, I mean, and, and a lot of it is clearly luck and randomness do play a big role. But I mean, I was very happy to ultimately go to IIT. And it was... And oh, IIT Madras best, was home. Yeah, so, best four years of, uh, you know. Yeah, but when you got the news, uh, how was it for you? That was... Uh, it's big, amazing. It was incredible. It was incredible. You think it was uh, a pivotal moment also? Getting yeah, into no, IIT? I, I was just very happy. I, I kind of remember I was... My sister went and saw the results in some newspaper. I forget where it came out. And then I was standing in this outside patio kind of thing in the flat my parents were in. And I, she entered the thing and she waved the newspaper from there with a big smile. So I knew I was at that point. So yeah, it was. Well, that was great. So then when you started, we joined IIT. How was it? Because from DAV to IIT is also a little bit of a jump there you too, know, right? You know, to be honest, Sanjay, it was not a big jump. It was not? No, I think oh, from so my DAV 10th, prepared you. DAV yeah, 10th to 11th was a big like, uncomfortable sort of coming out into society kind of jump. Okay. But but 12th to IIT was fairly straightforward. I had to get used to living in the dorm. But, you know, unlike a lot of my friends who were from out of town, my parents were literally in Chennai, so I could go and visit every weekend, lug my laundry home, things like that. I think I had it easy, pretty much. And did you have some friends from DAV that went to... Uh, yeah, yeah, there were some friends there, which was nice. But in my dorm that I was in, all the people there were all new. From out of all over India, right? Yeah, so yeah, that yeah. was a new exposure for you. Exactly. There was one, I had one friend, one other person in my dorm also was from DAV. But pretty much everybody else was from uh, all over the country. Wow. And we, in fact, we, in, we, we had a very good friend who was from Bangladesh, uh, for instance. So it was nice. It was a really nice uh, environment. I loved being in the dorm. Uh, and yeah. So those four years, how would you kind of think about them from a, academic from your 
the challenges or anything, friends, when you look back at those four years? You know, I critical years for you. Yeah, critical years. I, I, I sort of came to the realization that the thing that I was, that I maybe had some aptitude for, some talent for, was, was sort of in two areas. Uh, one area is any sort of mathematical thinking. I felt I had a bit of a feeling for, some instinct for. Uh, I also felt that any area which required sort of uh, language and communication. I also had a feeling for. And by the way, my sort of constant voracious addiction level reading continued without any break. Even in IIT? Yeah, all the time, continuously. And so I sort of found that I didn't really care much for core engineering. Now, I I did chemical engineering. And the reason I did chemical engineering was because that was the best I could get with my rank. But that was not your preference, though. No, you know how it is, right? They just go down and then they work. When they come to your rank, whatever is available, the best. And they have some ranking. Madras is better than something else, whatever. If I had a choice, I would have probably done computer science because that comes closest to my sort of math interests. Uh, But given my rank, I had my, the best I could do was chemical engineering uh, at IIT Madras. I could have done something else more interesting if I was willing to go to court, for instance. Uh, I didn't want to go. Anyway, so... I realized during these years that I really love things involving mathematical thinking and also love involving things involving English and communications. And I gravitated towards a field called operations research, which is really sort war. of war. Yeah, yeah. Which is for folks who may not know what it is. It's sort of a co- combination of applied math and econ economics. And so, so I did an OR class in my third year and I was hooked. Wow. I literally remember the first lecture, they talked about linear programming and I was like, yeah. oh God, I've come home. This yeah. is, and it was just like mind blowing to me that such a thing existed. And I realized that not, I had lots of other friends taking the class and they didn't have that same sort of epiphanic reaction. No. And then I realized, okay, this is a fit between me and this thing and I need to honor it and pay attention to this thing. And so when I applied to graduate school later, I on, applied only for OR. OR not chemical engineering. Yeah, or either you get or you don't get or. It's just like that. But you did. And it's the foundation for a lot of things today. When people talk about supply chain and other things, most people don't realize, I presume, and obviously you are an expert, I'm just a hack. Uh, But or is very critical for a lot of those things. So you did that course and the bulk went off that this is what I wanted to do. So when you finished uh, or you were about to finish IIT, was your thought that, hey, I want to go to grad school? What was your thinking? How did no, you no, come I to wanted that? to go to grad school. I was like, I want to do a master's. I want to do a PhD. I literally want to like bury myself in this field. It's just so beautiful. I just want to like, basically, I want to drink deeply from this pool. And so I, that, yeah, so I applied for graduate school only for OR graduate programs. And you applied in the U.S.? Yeah. And why? Uh, what was the thinking? Because OR programs are, f- are phenomenal here. What was the thinking? Why apply to the US? Yeah, no, I think OR programs are phenomenal here. So, for example, MIT mm-hmm. has the longest continuously operating OR program in the world. Absolutely. Right? Graduate school from it goes back to just after World War II. And Stanford has an amazing program. Cornell has an amazing program. So, these are all programs, these are all sort of storied and venerated programs. And I felt that, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be amazing to be a cog in those machines somewhere? So, and that's why I applied to a whole bunch of programs in the US. And uh, family was fine with that? 
Yeah, they were okay with it. My parents are always very supportive. I can't remember a single conversation where we actually discussed whether I should go or not, and then deliberately said, "Yeah, you can go." None of that stuff. It was just like, okay, yeah, just was. Yeah, but now that I'm a parent myself and I have kids who don't live in Boston, I know they must have gone through this thing of, "Oh my God, this kid is going to go ten thousand miles away." Like, what's going to happen? And because we didn't have any family in the U.S., but you know, they were really brave and courageous and didn't. Put any roadblocks. In fact, they were just gently and sort of unrelentingly, unrelenting. Supportive. Yeah. Wow. So you applied and you got into MIT, right? I know. It's so a what happened? Story. So yeah. I applied to a bunch of schools, and then so MIT admitted me, hmm. but without financial aid. Oh. Yeah, exactly. That was not going to work, though. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, so when, from your oh, I know exactly that you understand what exactly happened when you don't get financial aid, right? And I had applied to a bunch of schools. I got admitted to a whole bunch of schools, but some strange reason, most of them said no financial aid. And then the University of Houston gave me like a full ride. Okay. Said, yeah, come here and so on. So I was in this strange situation of having gotten to a bunch of prestigious schools with no financial aid. And the University of Houston with full financial. Of course, I went to the University of Houston. Yeah, and then I enrolled in the master's program there. And in the first semester, I took this probability and probability models class uh, by Professor Edward Cao, who is now retired. Amazing, wonderful man. I did the course, and in the final exam, he had for one sum question, I had given an answer, and so I got hundreds and everything in that class because. Probability is sort of a good match with the way my brain is wired, and then he took my solution and he posted it in preference to his solution, saying this is this much more elegant. And that was a little bit of a shocker to me because I didn't expect that I actually had the ability to do something like that. But his, but also the professor posting it, yeah, and that I, also says a lot about him too. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I, exactly. That is sort of what I was trying to get at. He was so generous in doing this, so gracious. It made me feel that maybe I could ask him to write me a recommendation letter, right? I asked him, "Would you write a recommendation letter to MIT if you think that I deserve it?" He said, "No, I'd be happy to do it." So he wrote a letter to MIT, and then MIT gave me financial aid. So financial aid for the uh, on the following fall. Following fall. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, I mean, I I owe him a great deal. Um, yeah. He. So that was a pivotal, very pivotal, pivotal. You. Went to Houston. You were in his class. That exam happened. And by the way, people who have never taken probability courses—it's a hard one. And he's is making it sound because he <laughs> has got this thing right. I've done that course, and it is at least I found it very hard. But anyway, that's a whole separate story. So, for but that year, then you spent in Houston, right? Yeah, for that year, basically nine months. Nine months. Yeah. How was that experience? It was okay. I really missed my family. To be honest, I also was sort of—I don't know how else to say it. I felt that I had, like, almost gotten into MIT, but I had not, if not for the financial aid problem. And so I was—I think I was a little sort of chafing, <laughs> a leash, so to speak. I was wondering what to do. But you know, I was just reading up a lot of stuff because I had discovered the the amazing thing that is the U.S. Public Library. Right, the U.S. Public Library system. So I was devouring books from the U.S. You know, Houston libraries and the public libraries there. But you know, it was I. I missed my family, and I guess one thing I forgot to mention. It, it's the kind of thing that I would not be forgiven for on the home front. 
uh, I actually met someone and fell in love during my final year in IIT. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. So this was uh, my wife, Anu. Actually, her sister, Padma, and I were classmates in IIT Madras. And so I, I met Anu through her sister, Padma, and we actually fell in love. Um, and I really missed her. I, of course, missed my parents and my sister and my family. I missed Anu. So I was like, it, it wasn't like the best time, those months in Houston. But I had. But good the time. weather was similar to Chennai. Yeah, right? yeah, the weather was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chennai, <laughs> Houston, most <laughs> it people would. Worse. Yeah, but yeah. so that was a tough nine months. And then what did you do? Move to Boston? No, I actually went back to India in May and then spent the summer with my family and Anu. And in early September, end of August, I came to Boston. Okay. Uh, that started my master's program here at MIT. Wonderful. And then. How was that journey? Because it was a whole new journey. Oh, it was incredible. I was, I felt I was. You I felt put, you were home. Yeah. You, you know how it is, right? You want to get something and you keep trying it. You don't succeed yeah. at the beginning. You're, you feel you're thwarted at every turn. Yeah. Finally make it there. And like, yes, I'm here. I know I was very happy to be in Boston. I mean, the city is beautiful. Stunning. Yeah. yeah it felt a bit more like Europe and India than it did of anything else. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I just loved being here. And the professors and everybody. Oh, everybody was fantastic. Just top notch. I mean, don't get me wrong. Professor Carvo in Houston was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, so clearly phenomenal professors exist everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, but in MIT, I mean, gosh, just every person you meet is like that. So it's really quite something. And you were challenged at MIT, would you say? Academically or it will the same for you? You were cruising or were you challenged? I wouldn't say I was cruising, but oh. it, it wasn't super hard. No, it wasn't. It was not. I think it was, it was good. Uh, it was a good match with what I wanted to learn. And what you wanted like to learn. Yeah, yeah. So then what did you do? You got your master's? Yeah, I got my master's. And uh, one of the things I realized is that I loved mathematical thinking, but I actually also love applied work, right? Applying math to business, to real problems. And, and I found that if I did too much of one and not of the other, I would get bored. I decided that after my master's, I wanted to work. So I ended up actually leaving, graduating with a master's. And then I went to and joined American Airlines in <laughs> back to Texas, to Dallas. And I spent two years there in the group that was later became part of this entity known as Sabre. And so I, I built uh, optimization systems. For Sabre? Wow. Sabre. I mean, for most people who don't know, that's the back end of all our ticketing platform, right? I think exactly. Yeah. So I worked in a whole bunch of airline problems, which are all sort of classic prototypical operations optimization problems. And I did that for two years. And then I came back to MIT uh, to do a PhD. Uh, because I, you always wanted to do a PhD? Yeah, yeah, I always wanted to do a PhD. In fact, when I came here for my master's, I initially thought I wanted to do a PhD straight. But then because of this, you know what, I want to work. I don't want to just do a PhD. I sort of finished with that master's, went out, and then I came back. Was that helpful those two years? So you recommend that for people? I think so. But I think I recommend it for a couple of reasons, Sanjay. One is that I think all of us, I feel that, and this is sort of a broader thing I've realized about the way people's brains are wired, including my own. Sometimes we feel that we need to be either this or that, right? And if you feel that we like both, so for example, I like math, I also like business, but the conventional wisdom would be like, okay, Rama, make up your mind, just pick one and go with, double down on it, become greater. But what if you like both? And what if you do too much of one, you get bored and therefore unproductive and miserable, right? So I would challenge and break the conventional. You know, try to find something where you can do both. 
And so for me, going into business made me aware that no one thing was good enough. It had to be a portfolio of things. It had to be a mix of things. And it's okay to do them sequentially. But don't lock up yourself up in a career in which you're like sort of destined to do only one thing because you've become good at it. You're being paid a lot for it. Society expects you to continue, right? The vicious cycle will just kick in. So, yeah. But so, that's the norm, usually. That's the norm. And but I think, what you're saying is, don't you lock yourself up. Don't lock yourself up. Because I think all these, all, I, I, in general, conventional wisdom is for the average person. Meaning, not an average as in a mediocre person, but the average of all people. People. Right? It's like the, the two point. The mathematical average. Yeah, yeah. Like the family with 2.3 kids, right? It's not exist. It's just a useful abstraction. So I would say that don't listen to the average. Don't listen to the conventional wisdom because it's for a mythical person who doesn't exist. Map it to your own thing. And so for me, it was, okay, I like business, but when I go back to my PhD, I don't want to do super applied thing because I can always do it in the business world. So I ended up doing a PhD with Professor Michelle Gomans, who's actually currently the head of the bath department at MIT. So I did my thesis with Michelle. And yeah. what was it about? It was in an area of optimization called combinatorial optimization, which basically involves networks and graphs and solving optimization problems on them. Just a very theoretical set of results that we proved. Basically, I'm just proving a bunch of theorems. And it was incredibly fulfilling. But then when I finished my PhD, I was like, look, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. Uh, and if I go into academia, I'm essentially setting myself up for this path. And so... I want to have flexibility in my life. And it turns out McKinsey was recruiting on campus. IT, McKinsey, Boston, obviously. Yeah. So uh, tell us then what happened. And they were looking for what they call non-traditional hires, <laughs> meaning people who don't have MBAs. And so, yeah, I didn't have an MBA, so I could put my hand up and said, yep, please recruit me. And so anyway, I interviewed with them and I ended up joining McKinsey because I knew at a minimum that I would get a lot of business exposure. I can scratch my do applied work in business itch. And I get a lot of variety, work with good people and all that. I did that for three years. How was that? It was a really interesting experience. It's, a, it's an amazing place. The people are very smart, very hard, hardworking, very driven. But what I found for me personally, I think it was incredibly valuable because I sort of learned two, three things from that experience. The first one was I realized that I kind of like to build things as opposed to dispense advice. So I, we would do a project and I would be like, I'm sure we could put together a small team Okay. Implement it. Yeah, implement, build a solution yeah. to do this thing exactly instead of having a three-month project cost a million bucks yeah. or whatever. Now, there are numerous other reasons why a three-month project with a lot of good people is important. Yeah. But for me, it didn't, res no. it didn't resonate. And then I realized, that, oh, actually, I'm kind of like a builder type. The other thing I realized was that I really didn't like having a boss. I didn't like being told what to do. So, you know, the partner would tell me to do something, right? And I'd be like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't. I would disagree once in a while. But whether I was right or the other person was right didn't matter. What was important was that I realized that 100% of the time I was annoyed at being told what to do. And that was a bit of a shocker to me, frankly. But because given my background, I'm not some non-conformist rebel or anything. I'm just some average person, right? <laughs> Who liked math and English. So it was kind of a revelation to me that I was like that. that. you don't like a boss. Yeah, I just don't like being told what to do. What to I do. wanted autonomy. So that was number two. Number two. Number three, which is very valuable, was I learned how to be a better communicator. Uh, I learned when you are trying to convey something very complex and amorphous and so on and so forth, how do you try to distill it into a the few essentials without dumbing it down? Like, how do you do that? How do you distill without dumbing down? That's something that I learned just with practice because McKinsey forces you to do this again and again. 
So you are an implementer, don't like uh, to be told what to do. And third, you learn how to get your message across without dumbing it down. So th those were good times. You at least figured out that you can't work in a consulting business uh, for sure. That's, those three years definitely taught you that. <laughs> you, you're a builder. Basically, you're an entrepreneur, builder, whatever you want to call it. But So then what happened after McKenzie? You basically told them goodbye? Yeah, I left. I I left after three years. I was like, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but I didn't. That was one small problem. I didn't have any ideas. And so I was like, okay. And then it so happened. I was also very interested in Wall Street and asset management and things like that. And yeah, and I... Yeah, OR, man. Come on. Of course. Exactly, right? Derivatives and everything. The foundation, most people don't know. Yeah. Right. And I'm sort of a builder type, not a trader type, right? Uh, I'm more building than transaction. So that's why I wasn't quite sure what I would do. But I was lucky through some connections I had. I ended up getting a job as a portfolio manager at Oppenheimer Funds. Oh my gosh. And so I was part I of- can't, I can't picture that, but that's a whole separate issue. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, so I did that. I was part of the team that managed the Oppenheimer India Fund, as wow. it turns out. And we were basically trying to do- Which like, year was that? This was uh, 97 to 98. And there was not a big story at that time, but anyway. Yeah. And so I would go to India very often to meet with the portfolio companies, Infosys, all these companies. But my job was to actually build a bunch of models which had been successful in the US, but perhaps had not been as well applied to the Indian system. So I built a bunch of models uh, to do these things. And then after about a year, I left and I teamed up with uh, another uh, gentleman here in Boston with a company called Redwood Investment Systems. And, uh, and basically what we were trying to do was to build, think of it like as a Bloomberg for the buy side, right? So that was the first time I sort of scratched my entrepreneurial itch in trying to build stuff as opposed to dispense advice, use the mathematical things that I know how to do to, to so bring them to bear. Uh, and then over the years since then, I've been involved in some other a bunch of other startups, including like a little break where I taught at MIT, then I went back to doing a startup. And then more recently, I joined the faculty full-time in 2019. So why did you go back full-time? More recently, yeah. I taught for a couple of years between startups and I really liked it. I loved teaching. And I really like the students and it was clear the students liked me. You know how it is, right? When the students realize the professor actually really likes being in the class, really likes teaching. They get it. They get it. It's very visible. It's very visible. So they get it. Yeah. And so I realized that. But then I had this idea for this company that later became a company called Sea Quotient that I founded. So I went off to do that and we did that. Ended up, it's now called Salesforce Einstein for e-commerce. It's one of the yes, last. very well known. Yes. Salesforce Einstein, that's you. Yeah. Say, say, well, to be clear, Salesforce Einstein for commerce. For commerce. E -commerce. Not the AI part these days that they are using. Exactly. So the Salesforce Einstein is uh, Salesforce's sort of broad AI platform. It has many AI sort of products for different areas. And the one for e-commerce is basically C-Quotient. Yeah. So, so you sold that to Salesforce? I actually sold it to a company called Demandware which okay. was already a public company at the time. And they, at that point, at the time... had They were a CRM company, right? No, they Demand were an e-commerce transaction They bank. were a transaction bank. Okay. Yeah. They were, I believe, the first cloud-based transaction platform for e-commerce. They were public and they were very successful. And then Salesforce acquired them the following year. Uh, so you indirectly ended up at Salesforce. Right, exactly. And then I ended up basically being... I was an SVP of data science at Salesforce. And I was the head of commerce... Einstein for commerce. 
And then I did that for a few years. And then I was getting... How was that experience itself with, no, Benio, just, with Mark good. Benioff? Mark Benioff is really an amazing person. I've had the pleasure of interacting with him just here and there a couple of times. He's a wonderful person. The company's really good. You know, mm-hmm. the people there are really good. And I actually enjoyed it a great deal. It was a really good company. It's just that for me personally, I'm sort of a builder. You're a builder. Yeah, I'm not a grower. I'm a builder. Yeah. The challenge of doing something from 10,000 to 10,000, it's mm-hmm. a very challenging problem. I'm not diminishing the challenge. It's just, it's not a good fit for me. I want to be challenged by something else, which is the zero to one problem. That's true. So, yeah. So I, I think I'm going to leave and do something else. And MIT reached out to me around the time I started talking to MIT. So yeah, one thing led to another. And then I ended up joining the faculty here full time as a professor of the practice. And in my role here, I basically teach optimization, data science, machine learning, AI, and now more recently, generative AI. And I... The topic du jour. The topic du jour, yeah. And then I advise companies, I teach courses, I do research, I do all these kinds of things. I continue to be very active in the entrepreneurial ecosystem as an advisor and an occasional angel investor. But fundamentally, I just love this space, right? AI, machine learning, optimization, data, it's all thing. And it's in some sense, everything I do is it just feeds that habit. Yeah. And it seems like it's all come together for you with this machine learning, AI, neural, neural network. Most people don't understand that or whatever you want to call OR being, is the foundation of a lot of these things in many ways, optimization. Optimization is what makes yeah. the world go around. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I was fortunate in that my like in the last couple of startups, I ended up doing much more things on the data side and not so much on the optimization side. Modeling the data, statistical methods, machine learning, things like that. So because of that, I have sort of a better vantage point because I can look at things and say, okay, this doesn't require optimization. You can do whatever. This actually requires optimization, and this is how you sort of put the, the whole thing together. Yeah. One of these days, we'll have a discussion about AI separately, because that's a whole uh, separate topic. Now, the academics, you've done the uh, startups. You're now working, as you said, you're a builder. You work with a lot of startup companies and CEOs, right? Yeah. Uh, and you have across the period of time. As I said, one of the things that a lot of people ask me and ask us is, how come People of Indian origin have been so successful, like you have. Now, you have a little bit of a vantage point because you're also dealing with it. You are in that background. You have any thoughts on that? Is there something that you think? I mean, I can tell you objectively a little bit about you, but I'm asking when you look at, and I'm sure you've dealt with people of Indian origin in some of these. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I think it's a really interesting and profound question. And Mm. and I'm not pretending to have a definitive answer or anything, but I'll no, tell you. I'm none seeing, of us do. Yeah. I think that, first of all, I feel that the folks of Indian origin that I meet here, it's sort of a biased sample, right? Because they're not a person that you randomly pick from the Indian population. They are people who, for whatever reason, had the urge and the thirst and the ambition, call it what you will, uh, and the opportunity, frankly, to make it all the way here. And so in that sense, it's already a very biased sample that's trying to, that's some almost intrinsically striving for mobility upward. And I think that actually plays a huge role because I see the same trait in non-Indian founders that I advise, Asian founders, Chinese founders, other nationalities, they have the same sort of drive. And I think the commonality is just the fact that they happen to be here and not in their right? It's sort of, they somehow made it here. The other thing I would say is that I think the fact that we grow up learning English in India I cannot emphasize how important it is. You know, I've, I, I see people 
very smart people from other parts of the world who didn't have the benefit of a, an English education. They are equally smart, equally hardworking, equally passionate about what they're doing, but their ability to communicate the beauty of what they're working on, the applicability of what they're working on, the power of what they're working on is quite a bit diminished because of that. And unfortunately, all of us, are, despite being told otherwise, we evaluate books by their covers. So I do think that the urge that brings people to another foreign country to make their life there, number one, and number two, having known some English, even if it's a lot of English, in a world which predominantly rewards English knowledge, those are all important ingredients uh, to what we do. And then I think the third thing maybe is that there is this very virtuous cycle of Indian founders, Indian entrepreneurs doing well, and other Indians come in and they see them doing really well. And they're like, look, if that guy can do it, so can I. <laughs> so, Which is a great attitude to have. Great think. attitude. Yeah, yeah. So and I think that's also part of it. There are so many role models. And then and, and giving the very unique Indian thing of, okay, how hard can it be? If they only knew. Exactly. If that guy can do it, so can I. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a very healthy attitude of, oh, let's give it a shot and see what Let's give it a shot. Those are... Good points. Uh, that folks that came over, we, it's like a self-selecting group in some ways. To be very frank, is what you're saying. And we got lucky. Maybe we thank the British for it or whatever English. And then also we have a lot of role models and entrepreneurs. So that, those are great things to know. Rama, you have achieved so much, and you still have so much more to do. Where do you see this? journey going. And I know it's very hard to predict anything anymore, but just, and you're an OR person, prediction, predictive analytics is something that you do, predictive analytics. So let's try some predictive analytics on you. Yeah, boy. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is the probable eating your own dog food. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. For me personally, I'm actually, I'm very sort of happy doing what I'm doing at the moment. I've done a few startups. I've been lucky with them, with some of them. But every one of them, including the ones that didn't have a great exit or whatever, I really enjoyed working on those problems, right? So no regrets at all. Uh, which I think, by the way, is an important aside, which is that only pick startup projects where you will enjoy the journey regardless of what happens, right? Uh, as opposed to you will enjoy... That's a very important point. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? When we talked before, you talked about it, about working on things. You talked about two things at that time was luck, the role of luck. And also working on things, no matter whether they fail or succeed. I think that you, if you want to do something risky, and most startup things are risky, right? You don't know how it's going to turn out. I feel that if you truly care about solving that problem, two magical things happen. One is that when your uh, startup or your project hits the inevitable bumps on the road, you will have like the sort of the, the stamina, the perseverance to see through the bad times. If you're doing it only for commercial reasons, oh, I want to make some money, what happens is that really big roadblock comes along, you'll be like, ah, screw this, I'm going to do something else. Right? You won't stay the course. But if you actually really care about the problem and you're in love with the problem, you want to solve the damn problem, then you'll be like, okay, whatever, I'll just shrug it off and keep going. Right? That is the first magical thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that if at the end of the journey, it so happens your project fails, right? you run out of funding, Customers are not renewing their contracts, whatever. Any one of number of bad things can happen. You can look back on the journey and feel absolutely no sense that you have wasted your life. Because how else should you have spent your life instead of working on really interesting problems? So I feel like learning great things, working with really good people, and working on worthwhile problems, using the things you know how to do well, 
that's basically the elements of a good life and whether it pays off commercially or socially and so on or sort of some sense side effects of these things and so it's important not to let that tail wag the dog too much um, which is why i think that pick problems that you're really intellectually very curious about you can't stop thinking about it you're boring people at parties when when they when, when you meet them right those are all really good signs and i think those are the problems you should really work on and you should not work on things because at some abstract intellectual level it's appealing to you but you don't feel it in your heart or your viscerally you don't feel it stay away from that because if things don't work out you will regret it and the worst thing you want to do is to have regret right you want to minimize regret as much as possible so that's why i think that is very important to work on the things that truly speak to you in some deep way great advice work on things that you're truly passionate about they might not succeed but you would have not felt like you wasted your life or your time i wish i'd met you 20 years ago and you'd given me that advice but what fantastic advice for people who are starting their careers or starting startups for whatever reason maybe it's they want to build a unicorn but you're saying is do it for the right reasons and unicorn is a byproduct of that reason yeah and, and if i may just add one other thing to it Please. okay which is that i read something maybe like a month ago which i think really captures the essence of this idea which was it the advice from this person was build something for others that expresses who you are build something for others this is like a in my opinion like this profound observation because first of all it says build number one meaning do the thing that creates some value out in the world and it doesn't have to be a physical thing right it can be teaching it can be writing poetry it could be anything but for others is the second clause doing it for yourself at some level you're going to run out of satisfaction but for doing it for others actually makes it very worthwhile and that expresses who you are it has to be a fit with the way like your brain is wired your heart is wired so i feel like this little humble compact sentence packs so much punch in terms of wisdom so that's why for example i literally try to live by this thing right if i'm if someone approaches me for some project advice or something and i ask myself sure it's for others but does it actually express who i am like what i'm about what i'm good at what i like thinking about and if the answer is no i just say no and i think that's part of the challenge in that you will be tempted by glamorous society valuing things which are not a good fit because they don't express who you are and you need to have sort of the gumption and the resolve to say no to those things and it's always risky because maybe the thing you say no to is going to become an amazing thing later on and then you're going to regret that but i do think that this idea of build something for others that expresses who you are i think it's just an amazing concept fantastic you had talked uh, last time a little bit about the element of luck that you feel plays a big role can you just for a listener just briefly say and how does an or guy believe in luck i've really uh, been thinking for a long time but just tell our listeners why luck is so important yeah i think first of all when you look at famous people and they get interviewed in fast company or forbes or whatever sometimes they give this impression that they planned they charted a course for their company or their lives and that they methodically proceeded along that course and then inevitably failure i mean success happened but the reality is very different because as we know history is written by the winners all these heavily airbrushed accounts of entrepreneurial journeys they just completely totally incomplete very misleading the reality is very messy and the reality is not only messy the reports substantially underreport the importance of luck the role of luck which is why i think that all of us should be very open 
to this idea keep our eyes wide open that look i'm going to do the best i can but there's a whole bunch of randomness that's going to play a role right and to your question about or right if you're a good or person you better acknowledge the value and the role of luck from day one because anytime you make a prediction it's going to be wrong any prediction is going to be wrong right which means that you better bound the error of your prediction using some ideas of what's going to how bad can it be how good can it be which means that if you're not thinking probabilistically all the time you're just deluding you if you think probabilist if you if you have an opponent and the opponent is thinking very statically and you're thinking probabilistically you can run circles so for all those reasons i think that it's very important to think very probabilistically and so on and that's really what i mean when i say the role of luck has to be really sort of appreciated and valued and that's sort of where it was coming from right from but no entrepreneur i don't care small medium or big you're one of the few people and i asked after i spoke to you i've asked this to a lot of successful ceos on our show and they all admit that luck had a huge role to play and they walked us to each of those but generally as you said fast company inc fortune nobody none of those there is ever a mention of luck or randomness and you like you said there is a element of randomness that exists but a lot to think about just curiously why do most of these ceos they don't talk about luck at all i think there are a couple of reasons one reason of course is that when we end up being successful at something we can't help but sort of revise our own history to put ourselves on a pedestal we had a incredible crisis i triumphed over the crisis i came through on the other side i made it through the crucible i attained victory so it's like the it may not even be deliberately self serving it's just the way we are wired we are going to reinterpret the past to make us put us in a favorable light that's probably part of it i think the other part of it is is that let's say you have two ceos equal ability equal circumstances and one of them they are both going on the same path and one of them just due to bad luck fails the other one due to good luck succeeds right now the person who succeeded due to good luck may not even realize they actually had good luck because they have never had a chance to compare themselves to their sort of counterfactual twin who had the bad luck right so even if they think they might think that they are like perceiving the world with 100% clarity but they never knew what if what could have happened had that not been that lucky break and so on because they don't even think of it as a lucky break they knew that they got up at 5 in the morning jumped on the plane went to california met the client did all that stuff worked really hard and then of course they they signed the deal but their twin did exactly the same thing and this deal did not get signed they just or maybe what, his flight uh, he missed his flight or something yeah it could be right so i do think that i mean this is what in finance they call survivorship bias right so at the end of the day you look at all the survivors the winners and so on by definition they are all going to look in a particular way and if they've never seen anybody else they think okay that was the only way and therefore it must have been my skill my agency that brought me here wow do you tell your startup founders some of this stuff because this is phenomenal yeah no i uh, tell them yeah and in fact when when i meet with them and they're telling me about oh we had a great quarter this is what happened that's what happened i'm always very curious what are the things that didn't happen what are the things that i'm not hearing right there is so much of it is like missing right and you may know this famous story about world war 2 where royal air force planes would go on bombing runs over germany and come back and then they had a team of people figuring out where to bolster the planes that came back so that they were stronger for the next raid and the conventional wisdom was that let's just bolster all the places where there are holes on the plane and then this guy abraham wald who was a statistician in colombia pointed out 
we need to bolster the areas on the planes that didn't come back. And so they ended up bolstering the non-hole because despite the hole, the thing came back. This has been written about in many places. It's a great example of you always have to look at like the counterfactual, right? The thing that could have happened but didn't because that probably has much more import for your future than you think. That is so true. So true. Wow. I'm learning just a heck of a lot. Rama, very quickly, has there been a role of mentors in your life? I mean, and they come in all shapes uh, and sizes, you know, grandparents, parents, etc. Because for our audience, is it important to have mentors in your life? That's a really, it's actually a tricky and difficult question, Sanjay. And the reason I say that is because I know the conventional wisdom is that your mentors are good. I, I broadly subscribe to that belief. But I have but, but you could yeah. see the but coming. Yeah. But I haven't had mentors per se in my own life. I or to put it differently, all my mentors are basically dead people. Meaning the professor in Houston, he was not a mentor. Because no, I was a student of his. Okay. He said I did a good job. I went to him, he gave me a recommendation. That was that. It, it wasn't like I went back to him repeatedly for advice. No. So I want to say that for me, the, my mentors have really been writers of books. Right. And typically these end up being like famous scientists, unsung heroes, people like that. And I read about people like Richard Feynman. Sure, he was a genius. But apart from that, he had this clear, penetrating view of, okay, let's look at the facts. Let's not get swayed by everything else. Let's think clearly. Let's think rationally about things and so on. And a lot of people, and more recently, actually, Catalin Carrico, right, who won the Nobel. I mean, my God, look at her story, right? I mean, she is like the proverbial unsung hero at this point in my book. And I look at people like Catalan who are laboring in obscurity without any recognition on something that basically has saved our lives. Yeah. And her university was not that, let's just put it this way, she was unsung. <laughs> when I read about people like Catalan, when I read about people like Richard Feynman, other people like that, typically scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, I get enormous inspiration from reading about them. And I sort of think of them as my mentors. Obviously, I can't ask them for advice, but when they write stuff that really resonates with me, I always make a note of it. I go back and look at it and I draw enormous inspiration from it, enormous sort of um, solace from it during tough times. So I think of like my mentors are all essentially wise people from the past and the present who were generous enough to put their thoughts down on paper somewhere. One of these days, I want to get a picture of your library, but that's a whole different stuff because I have a feeling it's going to be huge. Rama, I know we're coming to the end of our program. At the end, we generally ask lightning round of two questions that we ask all our guests. What is your definition of Indianness? And everybody has their own. I have a feeling you're going to give us something unique. I think Indianness has a few different things the way I think about it. One is sort of the whole, like the idea of Jugad, right? We can find some way to make it work. Right? Let's find a way to make it work. Let's not stand on formality. Let's just get in there and just get it to work, right? I just love that informality, right? This feeling of how hard can it be? Let's give it a shot. I feel that's a very Indian, right? For me, very Indian, number one. Number two, I think we are all taught not to brag, right? Not to toot our own horn and things like that. And in this very sort of social media sort of culture where everybody is sort of humble bragging, I think it's actually refreshingly different. I think it's wonderful. Now, I do think you can carry it too far. 
in some sense, if you carry it too far, you're actually being arrogant. You're basically saying, look, I'm not going to say anything about what, how good I am. I just want the world to invest its valuable time trying to figure out what I'm good at. Right? That's, that also is a kind of hubris. But I think there is a, sort of a middle point where you make sure that people, the world knows that what you can offer the world. And then you patiently wait for the world to take it. And I think that balance, I think it's easy for us to strike that balance because we have been told not to sort of promote ourselves too much. So I love that part of being Indian. And then finally, I want to say that, gosh, when I'm eating Indian food or when I'm listening to Indian music, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so lucky. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to say it, Sanjay, because gosh, particularly when I go to India, right? I, I go to Chennai, I eat North Indian food in Chennai. It's like delicious. I eat cholas. Yeah, Indo-Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, the sheer diversity of stuff in India is amazing. The music is amazing, right? And the whole subcontinent. Like I'm literally hooked on all kinds of music from all over the subcontinent. And of course, Indian philosophy. I mean, we have been very thoughtful in the way we think about things. We are very sophisticated in our philosophical thinking. We are very careful to distinguish between secular thinking and purely you know, religious thinking. I mean, there is a level of complexity to all that stuff, which I find really remarkable. And then I guess the final thing I would say is that Indian languages my God, I mean, I'm, I only know one Indian language, Tamil. So I don't want to extrapolate too much, but at least for Tamil, this is true. Like incredibly complicated concepts will be described in two words. Like a culture must be so developed in its thinking that it can actually represent very complicated things using a couple of words. I mean, isn't that really cool? And so those are all some of the things I just, I think are sort of captured the spirit of Indianness in my book. Fantastic. Last question. Tell us about one person living who, either in India or in the U.S., inspires you of Indian origin. Either in India, but the person can be in India or outside India, but of Indian origin, not in your family. That inspires you. Maybe one or two, but just one or two. ISRO, the Indian Space Research Office. ISRO. ISRO. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I mean, the things that they are able to do with the kinds of resource constraints they have. Incredible. Unbelievable. So when I see the Chandrayaan takeoffs and things like that, I literally have goosebumps. Right Now, I'm easily goosebumped by things like liftoffs and stuff like that. Gosh, when I see that... Look at the see, resources. Man. I mean, oh, look, they have man. two hands tied behind their back. On I'm, very moved, I'm very moved, very touched, and very inspired by that example. Yeah. Uh, great choice. Great choice. Rama, it's been fantastic to have you on our podcast. I mean, I could go hours and hours. There's so much knowledge you have given us and thanks for being so open and direct. And really your students are truly lucky to have someone like you. As I said, I wish I had your advice 20 years ago, but maybe even now I can carry it forward. But our listeners are really going to be inspired. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Sanjay. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for asking amazing questions and for creating an environment in this podcast where I was, when I just felt like I was just chatting with a friend as opposed to quote unquote being interviewed or something. So that makes all the difference for me. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories. 